0: Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin.
1: And I'm Steph Gaskell.
0: We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask, sort of things that people are debating out on their run or ride, In the coffee shop afterwards or jumping online to try and find answers for so we'll take those questions break it down and invite a guest expert or athlete to provide their particular perspective today it's episode 50b and it's our second birthday special episode so it's almost exactly two years to the day since this podcast began and like we did last year with our first birthday special we are going to spend today's episode summarizing all of the past episodes over the last year. So all of those various topics that we've done will give you the very short, quick summary. So if you're someone who doesn't like to go back and listen to full episodes and you just want the, the quick four bullet point answer, today's episode is for you. So before we get into that, how are things with you, Steph?
1: Things are good. Things are good. Um, looking forward to things starting to ease now, out, as I'm sure you are. So finished all the marking just this week gone well nearly all and then what else have i oh so now i'm just catching up on fixing up book chapters and position statements for the next probably couple of weeks and uh then hopefully be able to have a bit of a a break around christmas yeah what about you
0: nice yeah similar i finished my marking up a week or so ago but uh i thought everything was kind of wrapped up but you know it's never wrapped up until it's wrapped up and there's been a few ongoing things there and just meetings and a couple more uh, blood samples to run through the lab for that five hour running study but uh been doing all the stats and sort of writing most of that up already so that's been really interesting to have a look at the data from that and i'm sure when the time comes we can have a chat about that in terms of of what we found and obviously hopefully we'll get that submitted in for peer review by the end of the year which would be nice.
2: Yeah, yep.
1: Updates and announcements, Owl, I'll let you tell the exciting news.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, we've been talking about this for a few weeks now. We've had a couple of catch-ups over the last few weeks, Steph, including earlier this week. And, yeah, I think it's time to make some announcements for the podcast. Now, if you're listening to this on a podcasting app, you'll probably notice already that the logo has changed, Mm -hmm. new colour scheme. For the long lunch moving forward so that's an exciting change for us uh the other things i guess that are happening that we've been talking about is well probably the big one i guess that affects listeners is that the podcast we've decided actually to move it to every second week rather than every week with the podcast now that may be disappointing to some people but the reason that we're doing that is actually to free up time to build some additional online content for the long lunch Uh, beyond just the podcast so that's i guess the exciting part so we'll talk a bit a bit about that over the next few weeks Uh, it's not quite all ready to go yet but yes we will be having a a new long munch website with a whole bunch of content on there and some extra information beyond just the the podcast itself so yeah that's it's really exciting but it's going to take a bit of time to build so it won't be ready certainly this side of the new year probably you know well into 2023 i suspect Uh, but yeah essentially going to every second week with the podcast frees us up some time to actually get in and and do that work
1: Mm, yep awesome so just a reminder to our listeners that um, they can find us on social media at the long Munch on instagram facebook or twitter so yeah if you do have any questions that you would like answered please hit us up there but today's episode our
0: yeah yeah so episode 50b and we're just it's a second birthday review so it's it's a really good opportunity to go back and just review all the questions that we have answered on the podcast over the last year. And there's obviously been quite a few. And so, yeah, it's, I guess, a, the crash course in all of those questions, starting from episode 27 and going through all the way to episode 49. So plenty of questions to answer, plenty of information to summarise, and hopefully people will find it valuable.
1: Mm, and I've got my um, coffee up to number two, so I'm ready, fired up for, for this one.
0: <laughs> you needed your supplementation to get you uh, yep. optimising your performance, yep, which we'll talk exactly about shortly. Right. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Let's get into it. Let's do it. All right, Steph time to get into our lightning summaries of all of these different episodes and I'm going to let you start off with this one. So we're starting off back at episode 27 which was the last episode after our one year birthday episode last the end of last year in December. So I'll let you kick off with episode 27.
1: All right so the question was I'm over gels and bars what else is there and we were joined by Dr. Gemma Sampson, who's a advanced sports dietitian, I believe, in private practice. So there are plenty of options that don't need to be sports marketed or branded products. And you can actually just very easily grab products from the supermarket shelves or make them up at home that can achieve the same nutrition goals as that met by gels, bars and drinks. There's a huge range in terms of sweet and savoury options and different textured items. And so examples of real type of food options are bananas, wraps with spreads, sandwiches, banana bread, cake. There's homemade rice cakes. So Scratch Labs is an example that you can get free online recipe for. Rice balls, savoury drinks like adding maltodextrin, a carbohydrate polymer powder that you can get easily online with a vegetable stock and the list goes on. The kind of a criteria that we're looking at when we're trying to get, you know, these types of foods is that we want to make them easy to eat. They should be easy to grab, so very portable. If we're wrapping them, we want to make that wrapping very easy to unwrap. It should be tasty, shouldn't weigh too much. It needs to be the right type of texture, so also not too dry or hard to chew we might want a bit bit of salty options because the majority of gels and drinks as we know can be sweet so there's really no one size approach it really depends on what your goals are in your training or your race and logistics of those events and then sometimes you know we may be wanting a product that's really energy dense but again this just depends on the purpose of the training and the particular environment that we're in we also just need to consider That if we're in a hot environment, some of these product options won't work. And then the same as if we're in a cold environment. So really thinking of the context in which we're wanting these types of options. So episode 28 was, how can my nutrition help to keep me cool? And we were joined by Dr. Meg Ross, who's a exercise physiologist and uh, was working at the Australian Institute of Sport at, at the time. And we were lucky enough to be joined by uh, Olympic marathon runner, Shanae Diver. So when we were talking about pre-calling strategies, this is potentially referring to things like ice slushies. And this is a practical alternative to cold water immersion or ice vests, which can be used in conjunction with an ice slushy. Usually, you're using about 7 to 14 mils per kilo, um, which may equate, depending on body weight of the athlete, to 300 to 1,000 mils of slushy. And where you could get this would be a Seven Eleven kind of slushy from the servo, small or, or large cups. And... How it works is by lowering our body temperature potentially by about half to one degree Celsius from baseline. And therefore what we're doing is we're starting our event at a lower cool body temperature. Why ice slushes as opposed to, I guess, just cold water? Well, ice is more effective than water for cooling due to phase changes. So basically ice needs to absorb more heat from the environment to become water. And then in terms of performance effects, they tend to be seen or what's been studied is from about 30 to 60 minutes of hard efforts. We're not actually too sure on performance effects for longer-duration events. And then just practical ways to do pre-calling, we could just freeze sports drink bottles and then allow it to thaw about an hour prior to to use and you can actually get some really cool um, slushy-type options at the supermarket now. You can also use glycerol and sodium in the ice slushy and that also just helps maintain the texture and consistency um, as opposed to just having plain water. And an item that you could use is like a ninja and then you're putting you know, the ice and the sports drink in there and then you can put it in an insulated container like a, a thermos and, um, and use it. You can also add carbohydrates to slushies to help meet other nutrition needs if you do need to get in your carb intake goals. And then if you are a person that's susceptible to brain freeze, which I know some of us are, Meg suggested if we rub the top of our mouth with our tongue, that can actually help um, reduce that that type of brain freeze. Also in regards to trying to keep ourselves cool, there's menthol, which is a compound that's found in mint, so things like peppermint. And that's extracted and then it's added to specific products like confectionery, such as Fisherman's Friends. There were sour patch kits, but they've been a bit harder to find. And also there's some gels, I think, that are being produced. The way menthol works is it acts on the nervous system, so it changes the perception of temperature. So it it gives us this kind of coldness sensation, even though we're not actually changing our body temperature. So just need to be mindful of that. Also being mindful that the required dose is extremely tiny. uh, So we need to be careful not to overdose it. So don't play around with anything like menthol crystals. I'd be getting um, a product that's already made. And then the other thing we did touch on and we'll go more on in future episodes is hyperhydration, which is a strategy that works by increasing the total amount of water in the body prior to exercise. And most of this water is, is held in, the, um, in blood, in, in plasma. And this strategy is actually used when dehydration is unavoidable or we might be in an extreme heat or humidity type of environment. We may experience massive sweat losses and we may not actually have access or opportunities to consume fluid that's needed. Typical type of strategy is 25 mils per kilo of body mass and we would consume it three to four hours prior to exercise. And the reason we're having it that length before is because we need to give it time to allow the fluid to actually be absorbed in the body and also um, time if we do actually need to pee out any excess. We need to add sodium or glycerol to the fluid component because that actually helps increase the osmolarity in our blood and we need to make sure it's in conjunction with a balance of, of fluid and water that we're drinking. Otherwise, if we're just drink water, our kidneys are just going to pee it out because of um, the osmolarity changes. So if you have too much sodium or glycerol relative to the actual fluid that you're drinking... Then we actually would become really, really thirsty. So it's actually really important to get that right, and that's where we advise to consult with a sports dietitian that does have experience in hyperhydration strategies. And I guess the effect of hyperhydration on performance. We're actually waiting for Alan and Chris Irwin to hurry up and publish the systematic review on this. So we're hoping that to be in early, maybe mid 2023.
0: Cool. Let's move to episode 29 now, and this was our first episode of 2022, and the question was how do I balance eating for training quality and body fat loss, and the guest actually in the A episode was myself, and uh, our guest in the B episode was cyclist Neil van der Ploek. So certainly over 15 years working with runners, cyclists, and triathletes, Steph, I think you'll agree this is by far the most common question that we ever get asked by athletes that we work with. And probably almost two thirds of our clients kind of present with this kind of conundrum, and this is probably not so much the elite athletes; it's probably more the the age groupers, the recreational athletes, um, yeah, certainly the the non professional, non elite level athletes. So I guess the first question to ask yourself is: Do I actually need to lose body fat in the first place? And you know, if you're not sure about that, I'd recommend going back to episode twenty three from last year, which was: uh, Does leaner equal faster? And we. Really answered and dove into that question about, you know, do we just assume that, you know, being lighter is better for performance or is that not necessarily the case? And, and, you know, from that, you'll learn that it is not necessarily the case all of the time and that there can be downsides, not so much from being lighter, but I guess it's the process of trying to get lighter. But let's assume for now that there is a good reason for attempting to get leaner and that it can be done in a safe and appropriate manner. So carbohydrate, obviously, we know is going to be the one that fuels our hard training efforts. And for most people, that represents more than 50% of your total calories anyway. So if you are going to reduce your calories, almost by definition, you're probably going to have to reduce your carbohydrate to some extent. And obviously, this can hurt training performance, which is why it can be so hard to balance these two things at the same time. But we know that most people don't train in exactly the same way every day. You know, some days you have a rest day or an easy day other days you have you know possibly multiple hours with hard efforts in there as well so clearly the fueling needs are going to differ on different days of the week or different days across a typical kind of training cycle and so you can take advantage of this to achieve those goals that are seemingly in conflict with each other so we know that weight loss isn't achieved in a day you know it takes weeks or months to do that and so it's the average calories per day over that weeks or months that really matters not what the individual value is on any given day Obviously, your carbohydrate needs vary, and it's really the two to three meals or snacks prior to a training session that's really going to make the difference in terms of whether you're well-fueled for that session to optimize performance or not. So if you've got a big training day, you have big carb needs leading up to that session. If you've got an easy or a rest day, then it really doesn't matter too much. So the calories that you eat will be different on different days of the week due to that fluctuation in fueling for the work required, if we want to call it that. So this is what we call carbohydrate periodization. basically matching or complementing your training periodization with the amount of energy and carbohydrate that you're eating. It goes up and down. So if tomorrow morning, for example, is your biggest session of the week, make this afternoon or evening the highest carb meal of the week. If tomorrow is an easier rest day, well, you can have a lot less carbohydrate this afternoon because you don't need it to optimise performance on that day. And so because you're having less carbs, you're also having less calories. So by doing that, leading into the easy sessions of the week, you can reduce the total amount of calories you eat across the week. But you're still fueling those key training sessions so the quality remains high. And so you can achieve both those aims of reducing the calories you eat, but also adequately fueling the the training that matters. All right, episode 30, how can my training data help with my nutrition? So we were joined by Dr. Trent Stellingworth, who is the Head of Research Innovation at the Canadian Sports Institute Pacific. And we're also joined by a cycling coach and ultra endurance off-road cyclist, Dr. Stephen Lane. So we know that runners, cyclists and triathletes collect so much data, whether it's from heart rate monitors, power meters, wearables, apps, all of this kind of stuff. And it's not just our training data, what we eat and, and all of that stuff can be tracked in some cases as well. So how do we leverage this information to inform our nutrition strategy? Well, the first point that Trent made is, you know, how good is the the device or the app or the wearable that you're using to collect this data with? Does it actually measure what it's supposed to measure? Does it measure it consistently and with enough precision to spot sort of important differences day to day, week to week? Obviously, there's certain categories of products that we can be fairly confident with, things like heart rate monitors, things like power meters that are sort of iterating what's been around for a long time. But some of the others can be a bit tricky, particularly in the wearable space. Despite you know varying intensities and durations of training, you can look, for example, if you're on a bike, you have your, your work done or your energy expended through a power meter, you, know, you can get the, the weekly summary of that or you know, the total for a week in training peaks, for example, uh, over on the far right side of your, your calendar. And that may give you a general sense of how things are changing over time, because obviously training sessions are varying up in terms of the intensity, duration sort of combinations. But if you look at that total work done over various weeks, you can see whether your calorie needs are changing over time up or down. And that's probably one of the best use cases that we have for training data, sort of informing or or creating feedback from a nutrition point of view. We can use things like rating of perceived exertion for a session. So how hard a session was, and you can rate that on a scale. I know Training Peaks has an inbuilt one with little smiley faces, or you can rate it out of 10. There are obviously different systems for that. But what you can then look at is if certain types of training sessions become easier or harder over time by reflecting on that data. And this might give some insight into certain dietary changes you've made. You might have changed something and then you can look back and go, well, do my sessions now feel easier or harder as a result of that? Obviously, there could be other factors going into that. So, you know, it may not necessarily be nutrition that's having that impact, but it can give you some useful insights if you're specifically changing that aspect of of what you're doing. We talked about the fact that there are many wearables and monitors out there that promise the world, but the question is, what do you do once you get the data back? So before you spend the money and add burden in collecting and analyzing data, first ask yourself, what do I actually want or need to know? So start with the question and then go and find the technology that helps you answer that question rather than buying a piece of tech and then going, right, well, what can I actually get from this and how is it actually going to be useful or not? because you may find you've wasted a whole bunch of money collecting a whole bunch of data that doesn't give you any value, whereas you might've missed out on collecting a whole bunch of data that could have been useful as well. So once you answer that question, then ask, how do I accurately get data to answer this question? And then how will this data change what, when, or how much I eat to complement my training? And if you're not sure about any of that, that's probably when you need to seek professional advice to to make sure you're not wasting time or money on products and apps that actually aren't helping you.
1: Awesome. Uh, Episode 31, how are nutritional needs of young athletes different to adults? And we're we're joined by Professor Ben Desbro at Griffith University and now Head of Performance, I believe, at the Gold Coast Titans. Uh, And then Danielle Stefano, who's Head Coach of... um, How do you say this one, Al?
0: Elotic.
1: Thank you, elotic. And so the fuel or substrate use between adults and adolescents is not necessarily different due to kind of puberty or hormonal changes, but actually more likely related to the training status. So adults are usually more well-trained compared to adolescents and therefore utilise fuel differently thermoregulation is also different in which the capacity to produce sweat is related to pubertal development. So adolescents actually don't produce as much sweat as what adults do. However, that doesn't actually mean that that they're going to be at an increased risk of heat illness because the body is pretty clever and it dissipates heat um, differently. So it actually radiates heat um, or we get an increase in blood flow to the skin and we get rid of heat that way as opposed to actually making a lot of sweat. The largest influence on energy needs or requirements is actually due to do with um, activity rather than the amount of energy that's needed for, for growth. So when Also, what we need to consider with nutrition needs of adolescents is that when we're promoting a particular nutrition message uh, or we're trying to encourage a particular behaviour change, we need to continue to repeat that message and have various role models. And sadly, they may not actually listen to parents or even always to sports dietitians or practitioners. They may actually be more inclined to listen to peers or other maybe well-known and famous role models. So hopefully we can try and influence those people to influence a, a positive nutrition message. Then episode 32, do nutrition needs of female athletes change across the menstrual cycle? And we were joined by Associate Professor Claire Minahan, who's also at Griffith University in exercise sports science and Hilary Stellingworth, who's a two-times Olympian middle distance athlete, so 1,500 metres, but also a a coach in Canada with the the track athletes over there. So short answer for this hour was no, so I can probably just stop there, but I'll keep (laughs) going. And as Claire talked about, there are some kind of theoretical reasons why we would think that nutritional needs may change over the menstrual cycle, but unfortunately, it's not well studied just yet. There are no real specific recommendations that can be made at this time due to that. But we, we I guess, know that carbohydrate um, versus fat utilisation does change over the cycle. But these changes seem to be very, very small and are probably overtaken by other factors, such as, you know, if the athlete eats before the, their session so I guess key takeaway messages here are it's not normal to not have a menstrual cycle and it's also not normal to have an irregular cycle. So if that is happening to you, we would highly encourage you to go in and get that checked by a medical practitioner. We'd recommend potentially tracking your menstrual cycle over time and, and tracking your symptoms along with that. So considering, you know, what's sleep quality like and what's training quality like. And then for some athletes, there may be specific times in their cycle that they do actually notice that their training or sleep quality isn't as good. And so I guess the point there is take note of that. And then other people may actually see no change with the, the menstrual cycle or nothing that's too significant to them. So again, seek advice if your cycle isn't regular because there may actually be health implications with that. For example, you know, it can affect bone health. It might be a sign that there's low energy availability, that there's a number of reasons why, you know, you may not be having a a normal menstrual cycle. So it's important that you get that checked.
0: All right. Episode 33, can a continuous glucose monitor improve my performance nutrition? So we joined you know, a episode by Dr. Dana Lees, who is a registered dietitian and sports dietitian who worked with, at that time, the Israel Premier Tech Pro Cycling Team, actually now works with EF Tibco SBB uh, Women's Pro Team, and she works with Golden State Warriors, uh, amongst other things. And then Professor Dave Martin, who used to work in physiology at the Australian Institute of Sport, and then moved over to back to the States where he's from to work with his Philadelphia 76ers in the NBA and now works in a sort of corporate health startup and then we're joined in episode 33b by journalist and writer alex hutchinson who many people will know from his uh, great articles around sort of sports science and nutrition topics that you can see on the web and also his book endure so i guess with continuous glucose monitors certainly at the start of this year it was one of the hottest gadgets in endurance sports nutrition But I guess the question is, you know, what data do you get back from that? What can you actually use it for to improve your fueling practices? So we spoke to Dana, who has used CGM with riders from Israel Premier Tech. And I guess the first thing to note with continuous glucose monitors is that you're measuring interstitial glucose, not blood glucose. So there is a subtle difference. Uh, At rest, they're usually pretty much the same. And so for people using continuous glucose monitors for diabetes, for example, Outside of exercise, this this works really well, but during exercise, there can be situations where the interstitial and the blood glucose actually differ from each other, and there's published studies to show quite significant differences in some cases. So we can't always assume that what you're measuring with a continuous glucose monitor is exactly the same as what's going on in the blood. They're not necessarily that interchangeable. The other thing, as we spoke to these guys, is that glucose varies for many different reasons during exercise, and some of them have got absolutely nothing to do with fueling or fueling availability. So if you do take some carbs during exercise, you can actually see the glucose go up over a period of time in some cases, but the same will happen if you do a sprint interval. So I guess the key thing here is that glucose not only responds to carbs and insulin and the action between those two, but to stress hormones as well. Now, we don't, understand yet what glucose range is actually optimal for performance so there's so little research on interstitial glucose values during exercise that no one can say really with any certainty how high is too high or how low is too low or even whether your what is too high or too low is different in different people so it's it's a tricky one because we don't have good answers to that yet we do know that if you're under fueling on long sort of continuous type training sessions that may show up on a glucose monitor as sort of a gradually declining glucose level, and that can be a good sort of educational feedback tool for some athletes. If you have abnormally high or low blood glucose overnight, that could possibly be an indicator of over or underfueling with carbs, say post training if you finish in the afternoon. But it's not necessarily a perfect indicator of these sorts of things and these things aren't really confirmed in research. And so most of the time, as Dave pointed out, there are sort of less expensive and less invasive ways to figure out these kind of fueling type questions. So maybe there will be new insights into glucose monitors in the future, but right now it appears to be sort of limited, actionable information or advice that we can obtain or that we can't obtain in other ways. So our final question, You know, is continuous glucose monitors sort of a quote unquote real time fuel gauge as they were sort of first promoted as? And to you know, take a quote from Alex during his episode, he said, you know, you get a very garbled, indirect version of what's happening in your body, and you have to make a lot of inferences about what it's actually trying to tell you. Okay, episode 34, would I benefit from supplements? And we were joined by Greg Shaw, who's the Nutrition Lead for Swimming Australia, and also the Performance Manager for the Open Water Swimming Program for Australia, and also in our B episode by Emma Jeffcoat, who's an Olympian in triathlon. So I guess for athletes to stay healthy or chase performance gains, there is a strong lure with supplements, and that's a very tempting avenue to go down. But I guess the question is, well, you know, how do you decide if a supplement is actually worth your time and money? So supplements are just that. They're a supplement. They're not the be all and end all. And they provide nutrients or other food components, things like nitrates or creatine, for example, in convenient or concentrated forms that would be difficult to get without eating enormous quantities of certain types of food one exception as greg mentioned is probably caffeine because it's really technically more of a stimulant than it is a nutrient so greg talked about this concept of nutrient optimization versus deficiency so we have guidelines you know rda's and rdi's depending on which country you live around how much of different vitamins and minerals we might need to prevent a deficiency but at the end of the day athletes don't just care about not being deficient and not being sick they actually want to be optimal in terms of both health and performance so the nutrient intake needs may actually be greater, but it's hard to tell because there hasn't been a lot of you know, clear-cut research in that. So our aim here, I guess, is to optimise dietary intake or storage of different nutrients or food components. So think about supplements. Their role is you know optimising nutrient stores for peak performance rather than you have the traditional view of I take this supplement because it's gonna magically enhance my performance and make me faster or stronger or, you know, whatever it is. It's more about optimizing the amount of a nutrient in the body so we can get the most out of ourselves. So it's just a it's a subtle shift in mindset, but I think it's an important one. We talked about the fact that more doesn't necessarily equal better. So you can have too much of a good thing. And if you flood the body with massive amounts of particular nutrients doesn't optimise them because you can actually have toxicity when you have too much of some of these nutrients. We want to optimise but not over or excessively have those nutrients. So what nutrients or food components should we actually be trying to optimise as endurance athletes? Well it probably depends on what you're trying to maximise performance for. Shorter higher intensity things versus ultra endurance things might be slightly different. It also depends on what your usual diet is and what nutrients are already optimized just from what you eat on a day to day basis and which ones are potentially lacking. So, you know, if you eat a vegan diet, then things like creatine, for example, which comes in animal foods, is going to be potentially lacking. And so supplementing that might make more sense for a vegetarian or a vegan athlete compared to someone who eats, you know, big pieces of meat and chicken, you know, two or three times a day. So the the final question I guess to ask then is is it worth it? And this is really only a question that you can answer yourself, whether supplements are worth it for you. How much is it going to cost versus you know how much benefit may you actually get from that? So you need to consider the financial cost, the convenience or inconvenience of taking certain supplements, because some of them can be quite arduous, you know, three or four times a day in some cases. What are the side effects of those? And these will all obviously be different in different supplements. Uh, what are the health risks potentially, or is there an anti-doping risk as well for athletes that are drug tested? So we discussed these sort of issues with Emma Jeffcote on the B episode of the podcast and got her thoughts around how that sort of impacts her choices around supplement use. Are there any you know, sort of potential unintended consequences? Supplements are not a way of making up for a poor diet necessarily or giving people a sort of false sense of security. Oh, it doesn't matter what I eat because I'm taking all of these supplements. So... Remember it is a supplement to a well-planned eating pattern, not a substitute for eating well. And finally, if you want more information about this, you can check out the AIS Sport Supplement Framework to give you some more good pointers on specific supplements, or websites like examine.com, which can give you really good information as well, not specifically to athletes in sport, but it will cover that as well. Uh, and if you still can't answer the question, you know, is it worth it, is it safe, is it legal, etc then it might be worth seeking out professional advice before you choose to take certain supplements.
1: Oh, episode 35, how should I plan my nutrition whilst travelling for races? And we were joined by Jessica Rothwell, who works at the VIS with Athletics and is also the National High Performance Lead for Athletics Australia along with Ben Hill, who's an Australian cyclist and I believe last rode the UCI continental team called Team Bridge Lane, and now is an e-cyclist. So it's important being proactive in actually researching the, the destination that you're going to, what's actually going to be available. When you're actually booking accommodation, ideally you would like to have a fully functioning kitchen So then you can actually be in control of food consumed and hygiene. So if you can be more in control of your food at least a day or two before you comp, that would be well advised in in majority of cases. Uh, Things to to look for in your accommodation or to consider, uh, does it have a microwave? Is there a fridge, even if it's a small bar fridge? And what's the location of supermarkets or cafes and do they actually suit your needs in terms of the cafes? Take some easy to pack options with you. So you might consider things like microwavable rice, muesli bars, cereals, lollies as examples if it's a competition or carbohydrate loading taking things like disposable cutlery or bowls, travel bottles that you can um, pack condiments in, so the really small ones, and you could put also detergent in those as well. And then depending on if you've got the room, potentially considering things like a rice cooker, sandwich press, toaster packets, particularly if you are allergic to to any foods, and also taking hand sanitizer for hygiene. Be mindful of long-haul flights. Things that we need to consider there are paying attention to our hydration and also we may actually experience trouble with bowel movements, so we might get a bit of constipation. So considering what strategies you can use for that, making sure you're getting in enough fibre and trying to move around where you can. Try to structure your meals around the new time schedule as well and try and get into that new routine that you will be flying into. So set your watch to the new time zone. Also make sure you understand the regulations of the country that you're you're going to and carry any documentation that you may need, particularly if you are taking any supplements, make sure you've got documentation supporting the the need for that. And then if you are going to a country where it's non-English speaking, then try and take some written translations or try and know a few words that are important for you for, for food translations. And finally, when you do travel, expect the unexpected. So even though you may have a plan, try and then come up with a backup plan. So, so you always need to be flexible and think about okay, well what if this happens? You know, what can you do if if that situation does arise? Okay, and then episode 36 how do sports nutrition needs change when I'm pregnant or breastfeeding? And we were joined by sports dietitian Alicia Edge, who's owner of an online sports nutrition business called Compete, and she's also works with a range of professional teams such as the Matildas. And then we had ultra-endurance runner extraordinaire Kelly Emerson, and both are mums of two to three plus children. So, when we're talking about eating for pregnancy, it can be really difficult to meet all those nutrients that we're told are important for us, simply because at some points during pregnancy, we may not actually always meet them because we might be experiencing morning sickness, nausea, reflux, or be really fatigued. So, as much as we want to meet those nutrient needs, you know, these types of symptoms can get in the way. All pregnancies can be different. So some pregnancies you may have symptoms and then in others you, you may not and and there's no real way of telling which way it's going to go for you. In terms of the first trimester, this is where you, you are going to be adding on a bit of weight. You've got the, the placenta growth. So energy needs do increase by about 100 to 150 calories a day. In terms of energy needs in the second trimester, this increases to about 300 calories a day above your your standard recommendations. And then in the third trimester, that actually increases towards 500 calories a day, which is, is quite a reasonable amount. And for those that are active, then you need to actually consider that you've got sufficient energy availability. So you need to take into account the energy that you're expending during the day just for your day-to-day tasks and then also add on the energy that's needed for pregnancy so you need to make sure you're eating enough for for both of those situations and you can also actually be expending more if you're active due to actually having the increased weight on you particularly if you're if you if you are a runner you you will be a little bit less energy efficient And I guess in terms of relying on appetite to help you with those increased energy needs, sometimes that can work for for mothers. Unfortunately, again, other times it may not work because of things like the nausea. And it can be actually really difficult to get that energy in, particularly when you don't have as much room in your stomach that you've been used to. So if you can't trust appetite, then strategies to try and get that extra energy in are using um, foods that are really energy and nutrient-dense, increase the frequency that you are actually eating and also using energy and nutritional-dense liquids. If you are meeting the energy needs, it's more than likely that you should be meeting your vitamins and minerals that, that are increased. Gastrointestinal tolerance to things like your protein-type foods and to things like fruit and veggies may change. They may actually be reduced and you may actually be more inclined to consume carbohydrate-type foods that might be a bit more refined and that's that's okay. Nutrients that are particularly important are um, The supplements that are specially made, so things like folate and iodine in the first trimester, and then iron needs do increase and for some athletes they may actually need to supplement. Some athletes may actually screen the iron levels prior to to pregnancy and that may actually happen, yeah, anyway, just where you do do a screening bloods and and low iron levels will be picked up. So there might be times during pregnancy um, that potentially iron supplementation may be needed. And then the other ones to consider are calcium and vitamin D will also be increased. In relation to, I guess, things like morning sickness, I guess in terms of when you're going to be training, that will probably be dictated by if you are experiencing nausea and and feeling really fatigued. So when you train may actually change. And then just in relation to breastfeeding, when you are breastfeeding, their increased energy need is about 500 calories a day and also your protein, iron and calcium needs will increase. But when we are actually breastfeeding, appetite may actually be better matched to our needs and it actually can, could be easier for us to get in that amount of energy because we've actually got more room in our stomach to allow for that. Also, our fluid needs will increase simply due to the breast milk production. Uh, and then important thing, as I'm sure if you are a mum, that, that you need to make sure is that you just need to plan ahead to ensure that food is easily accessible because you're going to be running around doing a 100 million things. And then also you may want to feed and express before you actually do your training. But again, it's going to depend on on how you're feeling. And then in terms of when you're actually returning to training, you're very likely going to be, and ideally, you should be having a graded return type of approach to training. So energy demands will just be going up gradually. And so that shouldn't be so much of a a shock.
0: Episode 37, how should my nutrition change when it's really cold? And we were joined by Becky Hall, who's a sports dietitian who works with the Olympic Winter Institute of Australia and previously before that worked at the Canadian Sports Institute as well. And also joined by pro cyclist Sarah Gigante, who spent the first couple of years of her pro career over in Europe and has learned the hard way, I guess, what living in in the cold environments and training in that kind of environment is all about. So I guess the first thing is that actual nutritional requirements don't really change that much or at all. In the cold, especially if you're keeping your body temperature warm because of the exercise, which is obviously producing body heat. So, unless you're actually shivering, your energy needs or your energy expenditure doesn't actually change that much compared to other environments. What does change is certainly the amount of clothing that you're wearing and what that means for obviously the ability to carry food and fluids around with you, but also being able to open packaging and things, particularly if you're wearing gloves, for example. We also know that some foods will change in texture in the extreme heat or cold. And so things like drinks freezing in the cold or energy bars going rock solid and things like that and becoming impossible to to chew without breaking your teeth becomes a, a tricky one. So Becky's recommendations there was trying to use aerated foods, so things that are naturally going to have air inside them. So things like bread or baked types of foods rather than like your more processed bars and gels and things like that. Is a way to be able to get that food that's not going to go rock solid in those sort of cold environments. Also, the other thing you can do is keeping your food and fluids closer to your body and using your body heat to actually stop those things from getting too cold or from freezing can be really useful if you're really in those kind of um, below freezing type temperatures or close to freezing temperatures. Episode thirty-eight: Would more fruit and veggies make me faster? We were joined by Dr. Andrea Bracus, who's a Uh, dietitian over in New Zealand at the University of Auckland and also joined by two-time Olympian in 1500 metres, Lyndon Hall, who is a sports dietitian herself as well as an elite athlete. So firstly, we know that fruit and vegetables are clearly beneficial for our health more broadly and most people, which would include athletes in a lot of cases, could benefit from eating more fruit and veggies to meet what's stipulated in the dietary guidelines. And I guess when we think fruit and veggies, we're generally thinking things like vitamins, minerals, and fiber as the kind of nutrients that we get from those foods. But there are also a range of substances within those foods naturally occurring that we call the sort of the non-nutritive components. So they're things that aren't essential for life. We don't develop deficiencies and get really unwell if we don't have them in our diet, but having more of them may still be beneficial from a health or performance perspective. Now when we start to get into some of those the terms around these non-nutritive components, we have things like antioxidants and polyphenols and flavonoids and these kinds of things. Now these terms are, are really chemical definitions, you know, describing the chemistry of the various molecules and things. And some of these components that are in food can actually meet the criteria or the definition of, of more than one of these things. So you can have something that's a polyphenol and an antioxidant and a flavonoid, for example. Now, there are a lot of sort of supplements that are based on fruit and vegetable extracts that are particularly heavily marketed towards athletes and health conscious active people. And some of these products vary from you know pills, potions and powders through to things like green juices and smoothies and those sorts of things. Now, the vast majority of these have little or no evidence that they're going to be beneficial, especially when you could obtain the things that are in them in often much greater quantities from simply eating fruit and veggies as part of your normal meals. And so they're not going to be a great substitute for a lack of fruit and veg in many cases. Now, beyond that, there are some specific products that are marketed to athletes as being you know, particularly beneficial from a performance point of view. So things like nitrates that you get in beetroot juice, for example, is a big sort of commonly known sports supplement. Things like tart cherry juice and also New Zealand blackcurrant, which is the one that Andrea has done some research into. New zealand blackcurrant and tart cherry have some sort of theoretical benefits but currently there's very little research to show a clear performance benefit yet there may be some benefit particularly in the sort of the post-exercise recovery aspect with tart cherry for example but it's not 100 percent clear in the literature uh, and it's certainly something that's not really standing out that you know hey there's a, a clear benefit to be had here so overall There's a benefit certainly from meeting your recommended daily servings of fruit and vegetables, but the supplement side of things and going out of your way to have mega doses of them or, you know, trying to use pills and potions to make up for the lack of fruit and veggies just in your normal daily diet may not have the same benefit necessarily. So
1: episode 39, how much carbohydrate should I consume during training or racing? And we were joined by Professor Asker Eukendrop, who's recognised as one of the world's leading sports nutrition scientists and expert, also as an Ironman triathlete, and also joined by Liam Twomey, who's an elite Harrah triathlete. So, trying to find the amount that is just right for you in terms of carbohydrate can, for some people, be difficult because you're trying not to get too little and you're also trying not to get too much and that really does depend on what you're doing in terms of the duration of exercise and the intensity. As a general guideline we might start at a lower dose of of carbohydrate and then gradually build up our intake over time to, to learn where we may best perform and what we best tolerate. If we're doing less than one hour's worth of exercise, generally we don't need to worry too much about getting in a heap of of carbohydrate. However, we do know that a small amount of carbohydrate, as simple as a carbohydrate mouth rinse, where we're rinsing it around for about 10 seconds in our mouth, we can even spit it out, can um, have a performance benefit for some individuals and that works in terms of the brain. It's not actually from a fuel perspective. When we're exercising up to about an hour to an hour and a half and it's kind of, you know, of a moderate to to hard exercise intensity, then recommendations as a guide are about 30 grams of carbohydrate an hour. And then when going to about one and a half to two hours of exercise, it's potentially 40 to 60 grams of carbohydrate an hour. And then when we're going from about two and a half to three hours plus of exercise, then we're moving from about sixty grams of carbohydrate an hour up to ninety grams of carbohydrate an hour, and for some it may be higher. We can absorb up to about sixty to seventy grams of glucose. But then when we're trying to consume less than sixty grams of carbohydrate an hour, it can be really any any form of carbohydrate. So it can can be glucose, moldodextrin, and you might have a bit of fructose. When we are getting more than 60 to 70 grams of glucose, we need to start then getting the other carbohydrate from fructose. And then in terms of how much, we just need to be mindful of it. It really is dependent on our tolerance of fructose. So you may see typical ratios being two to one, where you're getting 60 grams of glucose, moldodextrin, and the rest from Fructose, so 30 grams, that that ratio isn't magic. Um, it may just be that that's the tolerance that um, is preferred for some individuals. Some individuals may go beyond that. They may actually go 60 to 50 or 60 to 60, but that's very rare, but, but it has been done. Some runners, you know, very much will struggle to get in the higher amount of carbohydrate when they're running, and that can be for a variety of, of reasons, potentially due to the actual uh, larger vibration on the gastrointestinal track maybe also due to logistics but if we are running for three hours or more at moderate to high intensity that may be where we are wanting to try and actually get in more than the 60 to 70 grams of carbs an hour and then in terms of intensity as Alan's already mentioned previously intensity can can mean very different things so you know it's kind of working hard can still mean a a low intensity for a more recreational less trained runner whereas for a professional athlete that's not working that hard may actually still be expending a lot of energy so what really matters is the absolute intensity Um, it's the power that you're producing it's the speed that you're going at and that's what will determine the calories that you actually need and therefore the amount of carbohydrate that's needed. In reality, it's, it's simpler than this. It's kind of, Asker describes it, it's like an on and off switch. If you're above a certain absolute intensity, then, you, then he suggests you can work at about 90 grams an hour. And it doesn't matter what type of athlete you are, as long as you are expending that amount of energy. But if you are running, let's say, a four and a half to five hour marathon, then you probably don't need to worry about 90 grams an hour because you're not expending that high amount of energy and you're better to take a lower amount of carbohydrate and therefore be less at risk, I guess, of experiencing GI problems. The gut can be a, a limiting factor, obviously, in terms of how much carbs we're trying to get in and so too can logistics. So we need to practice and, and train the gut as we covered in episode 7A and also we have covered in episode 41A. And also one thing that may be of interest to you is it's a bit of a myth in relation to we need this kind of 6 to 8% you know, sports drink or drink in terms of how well we'll tolerate it because everything that we're actually consuming and drinking is all being mixed up and, and churned together in our stomach. So it doesn't actually end up being 6 to 8%. Who knows what it ends up to be when it's in our gut? You, you may also see now the modern sports drinks like Morton and SIS beta products are just some examples. They're about 10 to 15% carbohydrate type solution. So I think, though, it's still important to be aware of what your overall carbohydrate intake is. It's very important. And to also be mindful that you are getting fluid in so that we're not over-concentrating our gut, that we're not really sure what is that kind of, you know, percentage that we need to, to be going for. And then just finally, in terms of what's your carbohydrate intake needs in training, uh, as Alan's already mentioned, that's where, you know, it, it really is dependent on what your training is in the week. So that's where we encourage you to periodize your carbohydrate intake. So some days you may actually train a bit lower in relation to carbohydrate and other days you may train higher. And this depends on your overall purpose of um, training and, you know, overall health and body composition goals. Okay, so episode 40. Is fibre my friend or enemy? And we were lucky enough to be joined by the one and only Steph Gaskell. (laughs) Um, So the definition of fibre has very much changed over the years, but just trying to keep it simple here. Basically, we are referring to, to roughage and I guess a segment of plants that cannot be broken down. And mostly we're relating to forms of carbohydrates. So certain chains of carbohydrate that due to the chemical structure, we can't actually break them down. So we don't actually have the enzymes that, that can digest them. So basically then it passes through the gut undigested and unabsorbed and it ends up in our large intestine. So why do athletes need to worry about fibre? Well, first of all, we know the benefits that they play in terms of health. They can help reduce risk of chronic health conditions such as cardiovascular and cancer risk. But fiber also, as we know, can help increase our feeling of fullness. And that can actually be helpful for some athletes, particularly those that are trying to manage their body composition. In ultra endurance runners, sometimes we may actually reduce the the total fiber intake due to trying to prevent gastrointestinal risk, but in a way, we're also, you know, potentially reducing the the body weight, although that'll be offset by the carbohydrate intake. If you're not getting in enough fibre in our diet, then um, besides the the possible health implications with that, it may actually also influence your bowel function. So you may be more prone to constipation. And fibre also can influence the diversity in our gut bacteria. So they can play a really important role in promoting, I guess, good, healthy bacteria in our gut. Also, if we're not getting enough fibre, we may actually be feeling more hungry, not feeling that full and potentially more likely to get in maybe more energy than what we need at times. Athletes, though, do typically have a high dietary fibre intake just simply due to the total amount of energy intake they're trying to get and also because they're pretty health-conscious individuals. Uh, So potentially if they are having a really high fibre intake, that may actually impair the absorption of nutrients or at least influence the bioavailability of of nutrients. So that does need to be considered. And also some athletes who do have a high energy intake, they may get full really quickly if they are having a high fibre intake. So they may actually need to reduce their fibre to try and help them meet their actual energy needs.
0: All right, so episode 42 can changing my nutrition improve my sleep? And we were joined by Professor Shona Halson from Australian Catholic University and also professional cyclist Cyrus Monk. Now, Shona was the head of recovery at the Australian Institute of Sport for many years, as well as with the Australian Olympic team for a couple of games. And she specialises in recovery, but also the role that sleep has in recovery and has done some work in nutrition in this space as well. Now, to improve our chances of getting to sleep, From a nutrition point of view we know that tryptophan which is an amino acid in protein containing foods can help in this regard and so often you know you have the big meal you know the christmas dinner effect where you feel really sleepy afterwards that's probably the tryptophan and so higher protein meals in that time before bed can be helpful potentially as well the evidence for nutrition supplements in getting to sleep is actually fairly sketchy So it's probably not something that Shona would recommend. She did also talk about, I guess, things that might impair the ability to get to sleep. So rather than things to do, it's maybe things to avoid. And so one of those is high glycemic index foods. So foods that contain carbohydrate that's rapidly digested and absorbed into the body. If you have those close to bedtime, that actually may impair the onset of sleep a little bit. But if it's three or four hours before bedtime, then it doesn't really matter. It's absolutely fine. We know that caffeine, probably not surprisingly, prevents the onset of sleep. Alcohol is an interesting one because it may bring on sleep, but it actually has a really detrimental effect on sleep quality. And so that can be particularly an issue. And again, similar to the high GI carbs, if you are going to have alcohol, the earlier you have that before bed or the longer gap between when you stop drinking alcohol and when you go to bed, obviously, the um, the less likely it is to impact on the quality of your sleep. We also talked about a few other things one that applies to many athletes is sort of overly aggressive hydration so people that drink and drink and drink thinking that they need to be super hydrated for the morning's training session but then they're up all night really poor sleep disturbed because they have to get up and pee all night and so that's not helpful and any benefit that you get from the hydration will be more than wiped out by the terrible night's sleep that you had the other one can sometimes be aggressive carbohydrate loading before you sort of your long races or training sessions And if you're doing that, particularly in the latter part of the day, then you might have some gut discomfort or just a feeling of fullness and bloatedness when you're trying to get to sleep. And that can be a real challenge as well. And then the last thing that Shona mentioned, obviously, there are medical reasons that people might be sleeping poorly. And so seeking out help if you are having an ongoing problem with sleep uh, can actually uncover things that doctors could do something about and might actually improve your sleep quite dramatically. It's going to have nothing to do with nutrition necessarily. Okay, episode 43, does creatine have a role in endurance sport? And this was just a single episode. We were joined by Dr. Brian Saunders at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. And he talked about the fact that creatine is produced in our bodies, in our liver and kidneys mostly, and it provides a way of producing energy rapidly for sprint efforts of generally only a few seconds. Uh, And that's in the form of what we call phosphocreatine. And so the creatine that comes in from our diet, or that's produced in our body uh, binds to the the phosphate to form phosphocreatine. So we do get some creatine in our diet, and that's mostly from animal products. So basically the flesh of other animals that have got creatine in their body as well. So meat, fish and chicken will give us some creatine, but certainly not enough to maximise our muscle stores of creatine unless you ate kilos of the stuff every day. So creatine supplementation particularly creatine monohydrate because there's a lot of different ones on the market but that seems to be the original and the best studied and the one that seems to most reliably produce improvements in terms of the phosphocreatine stores in our muscles Uh, it can certainly do that after as little as a week if you take the right dose now there's not much research on creatine supplementation for running cycling and triathlon beyond the sprint events so generally in running it's up to 200 meters or track cycling, sprint events, sort of less than 30 seconds. That kind of thing is where the majority of that research is done because we know that phosphocreatine is primarily used as a way of producing energy very rapidly, but for a very short period of time for those kind of events. Now, there is a theoretical benefit of creatine for sort of maximal sprint events, less than 30 seconds, where those sprint efforts may actually be interspersed within sort of endurance training or competition. So things like road cycling, we have a sprint finish at the end of a criterium or a road race, for example, or some other sort of one-off moments that require kind of a maximal effort. So things like obstacle course racing, where you've got to suddenly scale a wall or something like that. Um, but there is very little research in this area sort of less than five studies ever published and the results are very mixed from those obviously if you are going into the gym to supplement your endurance training then creatine may be beneficial in being able to lift a little bit more in the gym but i guess the key thing here is that you won't get the gains in muscle size or strength unless you actually do the extra work that the creatine allows you to do in other words the creatine is not a magic bullet that will just suddenly make you gain muscle, you, know, you have to do the extra work that the creatine allows you to do as a result of supplementation. Now, the potential downsides to creatine, well, it is uh, a little bit of water retention, maybe one to one and a half kilos in men, about half to one kilo in women. That might be a disadvantage, particularly if you know you're competing, particularly for uphill running or cycling types of events. Although Brian did point out that if you're supplementing for a longer period of time, more than a couple of weeks, then actually that initial water retention may be lost after a couple of weeks. And then you're not having that additional weight gain because of the creatine supplementation. So as Brian said, you know, if you're not sure whether creatine is right for you, you can obviously give it a try. It's not hugely expensive. Um, There are minimal kind of side effects. As far as we know, there are no long-term health consequences. And this supplement's been around for sort of 30 plus years now. If you do want to take it, as I said, you can maximise your muscles creatine or phosphocreatine stores in about a week. And that's done by taking about sort of 15 to 20 grams of creatine per day. You need to split that into doses, otherwise you're going to get some gastrointestinal side effects from that. So you generally take a dose of three to five grams, which is about a teaspoon's worth of the pure powder, about four times a day. And then once you've loaded over that week, you just need that one, dose of five grams a day, three to five grams a day, to maintain those phosphocreatine stores to prevent them from dropping again. And taking creatine with food or fluids may help to reduce those sort of gastrointestinal issues. Although if you're taking them in those sort of three to five gram doses at one time, then it's unlikely that you're going to get those kind of issues anyway. So does creatine have a role in endurance sport? Uh, Well, probably not, unless you're doing sort of short maximal effort sprints in training or competition or you're trying to get bigger or stronger in the gym with a weight training program to complement that.
1: Okay, episode 44, how are nutritional needs of master athletes different to younger athletes? And We were joined by Professor Peter Rayburn. He recently retired. He was the head of the program at Bond University's Institute of Sport and Health on the Gold Coast and also on the editorial board for the European Review of Aging and Physical Activity and a very high-level athlete himself being a former national champion in surf life saving. And Mary Mitchell, a ultra-endurance extraordinaire, both in Ironman, triathlon and ultra-running. So first of all, what is a Masters athlete? Well, generally we're talking about 35 years and over However, that really provides a huge range of ages. And also the age cutoff depends on the particular sport. And then within this age range, obviously there's a big range of training experience. So some people some someone that might be in the 70s may be relatively new to their sport, whereas someone that's, you know, 35 may have been doing that particular sport for years and years. So that influences things. Most research is actually on older people, and ageing in general, or sports nutrition is mainly actually focused on younger people. So there's actually very little research that's been done on older athletes specifically, and therefore it is difficult to make any concrete recommendations. It's usually drawn and extrapolated from both the the younger pop and also what happens in the ageing and older population. Two factors mainly will influence nutritional needs is the ageing process and also the, the training history. So generally speaking, the maximal intensity reduces. So the maximal heart rate and VO2 max declines. So the absolute exercise intensity decreases, even though we may actually be working at the same relative exercise intensity So, this means that due to the reduction in absolute exercise intensity, such as our power and speed being reduced, that our um, energy expenditure is going to be less. We can also become more energy efficient with, you know, the more training that we do. So, therefore, uh, lower energy expenditure. And due to this reduction in energy expenditure, we therefore would have a reduced energy requirement. And it's probably then going to be easier to gain body fat because we can't actually, you know, consume the same amount of energy than what we got away with when we were younger. And also due to the aging process where we do have a a loss of muscle mass. So the reduced energy expenditure means that we're also actually producing less heat which means that we're going to have a lower sweat rate and therefore that's going to influence our fluid requirement, which will mean it will generally be lower if we're not producing as much heat, we're not sweating as much. Um, So therefore, if we keep drinking the way we used to when we were younger, we may be at an increased risk of overhydration if we're not actually producing that much heat and producing that much sweat. And older people, not necessarily older athletes, it's been in older people that it's been researched, do show a reduction in the sensation of thirst. And Mary actually has experienced this herself. So therefore, it's maybe actually quite important to do some fluid balance observations to see how well your hydration needs are being met. Also, as we age, we generally need a little bit more protein to to be able to actually achieve the same level of protein synthesis than what we were when we were younger. And if we're not getting in enough of that protein, it can become harder to maintain our actual muscle mass. And we may actually also find we're not recovering as well. So when we generally speak as protein recommendations, as a general guide, we might say for the younger pop to be between 20 and 30 grams of protein per meal of high-quality protein, then for the older population, this might translate to being more towards the sort of 30 to 40 grams of um, high-quality protein in a meal or snack. And then also considering that there's this reduction in muscle mass, then that's probably influencing a less storage capacity for, for glycogen and carbohydrate so that may actually mean that when we are undertaking carbohydrate loading, our carbohydrate recommendations may not be as high as what it is for younger athletes. Also, we, you know, there is an increased risk of potentially an impaired glucose tolerance as we get older and particularly if we do have a family history. So therefore, again, just needing to be mindful of how much carbohydrate we actually do need. Bone density declines as we age, so calcium and vitamin D will become increasingly important, so we do need to consider our dietary intake, sun exposure and potentially screening for these vitamins and minerals. Creatine may be of interest, taken together with protein post-exercise. Supplements like fish oil may be beneficial for joint health um, and also have an influence on protein synthesis and cardiovascular risk. Beta-alanine may be another supplement to to look into. And I guess overall, how is an older, you know, a Masters athlete different to a, you know, younger non-Masters athlete? Well, they may need a little less calories. They may need a little bit more protein. um, And they may actually be needing to be more mindful of their carbohydrate and fluid requirements.
0: All right, episode 45, how do I stop cramping? And we're very lucky to be joined by Professor Kevin Miller from Texas State University, as well as Ben Hill, who we mentioned earlier in the travel episode as well, being a cyclist and and now into triathlon as well. So cramping is a really tricky area. You know, people have all sorts of theories and pills and potions that are going to cure your cramping magically. Um, but what we know about cramping, and Kevin really pointed this out, is it's very similar to what we call exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome, which is a very complex, multifactorial phenomenon. Uh, we talked about that back in Episode 7A of the podcast. And so Kevin's model of cramping brings together several previously opposing theories around you know what causes cramping and shows how they could all potentially have some role in cramping and that there are kind of two sort of independent pathways that all impact on the functioning of the nervous system and if enough things impact on the nervous system to a to a large enough extent that's when cramping is going to occur and so the things that do cause that impact on the nervous system will be different in different people and so and and it's not just one thing in some people it's the build up of multiple things going on which is why that trial and error approach of just trying to change one thing is unlikely to actually find the sort of, you know the cause or the solution to your cramps, because it's probably more than one factor going on at any given time. But the two main pathways, firstly, was changing the functioning of the central nervous system itself or getting feedback to the central nervous system from our muscles. So for the nervous system function, there are probably some genetic components to that, but there are contributions from other things like chronic medical conditions, certain medications that have an impact or a side effect on the nervous system but also things like the weather, hot environments, for example. Anxiety and stress is a big one, and that can be the physical stress of exercise, but it can also be psychological stress, and that's something that Kevin's looking into now. Uh, It can be lack of sleep. It could be having um, a sudden adrenaline surge during during a race or training, so having a near crash or a near miss, something like that mid-race, may increase your risk of cramping as well. Uh, and then some supplements things like caffeine being a stimulant may have an effect on the nervous system that's detrimental in some people to cramping as well in terms of the muscle side of things and how that's feeding back into the nervous system that includes the muscle temperature and so that's related to both the weather but also your exercise intensity Uh, the pain signals from any injuries that might be going on uh, repeated contractions of the muscle in the shortened position. We know that that has a, an impact in terms of biomechanics, uh, and that has a, a flying impact back to the nervous system, and also muscle fatigue, which may have some particular nutrition implications in terms of underfueling training, for example, uh, or inadequate hydration or overhydration possibly as well. Now, from a nutrition point of view, that minimizing muscle fatigue, as I said, is probably an underappreciated role in cramping. So adequate fueling is going to be really important there. It's certainly not you know, the one, one and only cause and therefore solution to cramping, but it may have a role that maybe people haven't really thought of so much in the past. What people have thought about a lot in the past is hydration and electrolytes. And so hydration wise, we know that dehydration or a quote unquote lack of sodium doesn't seem to be a major risk factor for cramping. But suddenly dropping the amount of sodium in your blood does seem to be a risk factor for cramping. We're not really sure why, but if you suddenly take a large amount of plain water and and drop the sodium in your blood quickly, then that actually does seem to increase your cramping risk. Now, In terms of what to do about it, we know that there are products on the market, things like pickle juice and hot shots that are trying to activate receptors in your mouth that feed back to the nervous system. and while they may have some effect in some people that, you know, temporarily relieving cramping, um, they're not addressing the underlying causes of why you're having the cramping in the first place. So it's a bit of a band aid solution. It's not addressing those root causes of, you know, why the nervous system is behaving the way that it is. But I guess if we put all of that together and, and we mentioned the questionnaire, that kevin's published which can be really really useful to try and find the cause of cramps for any individual or, or the main risk factors for them but i think the single most common observation that people have is that cramps will happen far more on race day than it ever does in training so then you've got to ask yourself well what's fundamentally different about race day and that could be a number of things and it can be different things for different people the intensity of exercise could be different the duration could be different But it could even be things like anxiety, maybe anxiety of competition. It could be things like muscle fatigue because of the duration or the intensity or the combination of those. It could be the use of caffeine that you don't do in training but you do on race day. It could be all sorts of different things. But I think one of those fundamental questions that a lot of athletes need to ask themselves is, I'm cramping on race day and not training. What is different about my race day compared to my training? And can I try and replicate my race day in training? And that's not always possible, but it might give you some insights into what's going on there. Now, I guess to to wrap all of that up, no two people will have the exact same causes of their cramping. So we need to figure it out for yourselves. And there is no current testing protocol like we have for gut issues that Steph's been involved with in her PhD. We might have something like that in the future. But for now, the best we have is the questionnaire that we ran through with Ben in the B episode. All right. Episode 46 now what is metabolic flexibility and why should I care? So we were joined by Jeff Rothschild, who's finishing off his PhD in sort of this and and related areas over in New Zealand. And we were also joined again by Neil van der So in terms of what is metabolic flexibility? Well, it's really the ability to use both carbohydrate and fat as a fuel and the ability to switch between them as required to optimize your performance. So at low to moderate intensities of exercise being able to rely primarily on fat as a fuel source and then at high intensities of exercise being able to switch over and use carbohydrate very quickly and very effectively to produce energy quickly when we need to. So why should I care about metabolic flexibility? Well I guess if we're too carbohydrate dependent, so our ability to use fat is kind of under-trained or, or underdeveloped, developed then we might be more susceptible to hunger flatting or bonking during training or races because we're so over-reliant on carbohydrate that it's easy to deplete that. If we are too dependent on fat and not very good at being able to use carbohydrate during exercise, we find that often in those short high-intensity efforts are gonna start to fall flat. And so people may struggle In race situations, for example, they can do long, slow rides all day, but in a race where the hammer goes down, they really struggle in that scenario. So when is metabolic flexibility relevant? Well, if we think about shorter events, you know, thinking about running, for example, 10 kilometre or half marathon running, something like sprint distance, triathlon, track cycling, criterium racing, you know, theoretically, you could probably get away with, you know, being completely carbohydrate dependent for those kind of events. And carbohydrate has a lower oxygen cost to produce the same amount of power or or energy. And so theoretically, at least there could be a potential benefit to being more carbohydrate reliant and less fat reliant in those scenarios. Although that's very much theoretical, as Jeff said. Now, if your events between kind of three to 12 hours in duration, then metabolic flexibility is probably going to be very important especially if there are hard or very intense efforts interspersed within those events. So things like road cycling, particularly at the elite and professional level, trail running where there's big climbs somewhere along the way, Um, your Ironman or your half Ironman, I should say, 70.3, or even the elite guys at Ironman uh, will be very carbohydrate reliant, but also wanting to be able to tap into those fat stores as well. Now, if you're doing an ultra distance event, you know, sort of 15 hours plus and the intensity is relatively low, well, possibly in some of those cases, people can get away with, you know, being predominantly reliant on fat and using very little carbohydrate. Um, now, that may not work if you've got hard efforts in there, but if you're going sort of long and slow, then, yeah, possibly that that's not so much of an issue. So how do you know if you're metabolically flexible or not? Well, you have to go and do a lab test So what you should see is mostly relying on fat at lower intensities of exercise, but being able to switch that up and being able to produce a lot of energy from carbohydrate towards the end of those tests as they get progressively harder. If you don't have access to lab testing, I guess what you'd see if you were metabolically flexible is you could do your long, slow, fasted rides without bonking, but also you're able to produce short, hard efforts really well as well. So being able to switch between carbohydrate in those short, hard efforts and fat in those really long, slow efforts. Can you improve your metabolic flexibility? Well, yes. And generally, the long-term strategies trump the short-term strategies, both in terms of training and diet. So people go out and try and just do faster training or have no carbs during the session. And that might have some effect, but nowhere near as much as you know altering the amount of total fat and carbs you eat on a day-to-day basis. And so to improve your ability to use fat, doing long training sessions and finishing with a low muscle glycogen sort of fits with what we call the glycogen threshold hypothesis, which is basically where you finish with the tank fairly empty in terms of carbs, you're going to increase the body's ability to use fat over time. Increasing the the fat in your diet and reducing down the carbs can play a role as well. Obviously, you know, the extreme of that is your low carb, high fat and, and keto type diets. And that will certainly be effective at increasing fat oxidation but it comes at the expense of impairing the body's ability to use carbohydrates so that's not metabolic flexibility at all it's just going from one extreme of being very carbohydrate dependent to the other extreme of metabolic inflexibility that you're now very fat reliant and, and unable to use carbohydrate very well now if you're someone who is trying to improve the use of carbohydrate the first thing is just simply eating more carbs on a day-to-day basis and then fueling your training better in terms of just before and during those sessions. Uh you still have to train appropriately for those sort of high intensity efforts though. So it's not just a matter of eating carbs and your sprint efforts will get better. You've still got to go out and do sprint efforts in training as well. Factors that make surprisingly little difference in terms of altering your metabolic flexibility. Firstly, fasted training. So The muscle glycogen at the end of exercise matters far more and the total amount of glycogen that you go into a training session is influenced by, you know, things that you ate in the three, four meals beforehand, not just what you did or didn't have on the morning of training. So you've got to think back to what you're eating the night before if it's a morning session or even the afternoon before that's really going to make that difference. And likewise, carbohydrate during exercise actually makes very little difference. So if, you know, you're low on glycogen, You'll still use fat well in training, even if you're consuming carbs during training. So it's not going to completely blunt that effect. All right, let's move on now to episode 47. How much sodium do I need to replace during exercise? And I was a guest for the A episode and we had Martin Dukas in the B episode, who was a participant in the five hour sodium replacement study we finished up in the lab at Monash earlier this year. So firstly, our sodium needs appear to be mostly related to either taste or flavour preferences in most cases or balancing out our fluid replacement. So we maintain a stable blood sodium concentration or osmolality. And this helps to maintain both the total amount of water in our body. So our overall sense of hydration, but also the water distribution between the inside and the outside of the cells. Now, the body water side of things, if you're wondering, you know, how does sodium affect that? Well, it affects how the kidneys either make you pee out water or hang on to that water, essentially. And also your sense of thirst, how inclined you are to actually want to drink water as well. Now, if you take in sodium in excess of what you need, and what I mean by that is basically more than you need to balance out the fluid replacement, and I'll get to what that looks like in a minute, what will happen is well it will help a bit to maintain your blood volume compared to having no sodium at all during exercise but it does that at the expense of stealing water from the inside of your cells to do that also potentially impaired sweat responses as well from having a high blood sodium concentration tends to impair sweating a little bit and that has obviously implications in terms of body temperature now generally speaking if we go out and exercise and consume nothing at all. So no sodium, but also no water. Generally speaking, our blood sodium and our osmolality will go up during exercise because as we sweat, we lose water and sodium, but we lose a lot of water and not much sodium because we actually retain some of that sodium that's originally intended for the sweat gets absorbed back into the body. So it's not until we start drinking to replace more than about 70% of our Sweat fluid losses that we're actually going to see our blood sodium concentration start to go down during exercise. If we're consuming less fluid than that, actually our blood sodium concentration goes up rather than down. And if it's going up, then replacing more and more sodium is only going to make it go up even more and then start to run into trouble from that perspective. So, really, it's probably when you're replacing more than 70% of your fluid losses, but less than 100% of your fluid losses. That's kind of that sweet spot where having some sodium might really be beneficial in terms of you know balancing the blood sodium concentration and the osmolality uh, retaining the, that fluid in the blood better and then contributing to a hydration perspective obviously there's no no situation where we recommend you drink more than hundred percent of your fluid losses and that can really increase your risk of developing hyponatremia so how do we decide if sweat sodium testing and replacing a specific amount during exercise is actually relevant to you? Well, I guess the way I like to think about it is there's kind of three questions that you have to answer and you have to answer yes to all three questions before actually going out and doing a sweat sodium test and replacing a specific amount really becomes relevant for you. So the first question is, is it actually beneficial to drink enough to replace more than 70% of your fluid losses? And As a general rule, obviously, the longer the event, the more total sweat that you're going to lose over the whole event. And generally speaking, if it's anything less than four hours, it's very unlikely that you're going to sweat enough to need to replace more than 70% of that loss to maintain a good level of hydration. Uh, Another rule of thumb that you can use is about five litres. So if you're not losing more than five litres of total sweat over the whole duration of your event, then probably, again, sweat testing and sodium replacement is probably not that necessary. But if it is more than that, it might be. And the second question is, is it physically possible to replace more than 70% of your fluid losses during exercise? Because if it's not, again, sweat-sodium testing no longer becomes relevant to you. And so when I say physically possible, I'm talking about sort of gut tolerance, your ability to actually drink, swallow without choking, particularly for runners doing sort of high intensity, you know, marathons and half marathons at sort of that elite level that might be a challenge, but also just the ability to drink enough and tolerate it from a gut perspective is going to be really important. And so the higher your sweat rate becomes, obviously if you take 70% of a higher sweat rate, the amount that you need to drink also becomes higher. So once you cross about 1.8 litres an hour of sweat rate, you know, when you start to work out what 70% of that is, you're talking about 1.3 litres an hour of fluid intake that you'd have to drink, and that's going to be very challenging for the vast majority of people, so probably unrealistic. So again, if you can't do that, you probably don't need to do a sweat test and go about a specific sodium replacement strategy. And then the final question, is replacing more than 70% of your fluid losses practically achievable for you? And what I mean here is, do you actually have the access to the fluid on course um, the availability of it at things like aid stations or the ability to carry it with you between aid stations or feed zones. Is that fluid suitable in terms of taste and temperature to make you actually want to drink that quantity as well? And, you know, in a lot of cases, there just isn't enough access to fluid and you can't drink more than 70% of your losses. And in which case, again, you know, replacing a specific amount of sodium is probably not relevant to you. But if you answered yes to all three of those, it is likely to be beneficial it's physically possible and it's practically achievable to drink that much, then yes, doing a sweat sodium test might be beneficial and having a specific amount might be helpful. So let's give you some general rules of thumb of what that actually looks like. So you go out and do your sweat sodium test. If the people doing the test know what they're doing, they're going to give you an estimate of your whole body sweat sodium concentration rather than just what it was at the patch that they put on. And as a general rule of thumb, if your sweat sodium concentration is less than about 40 millimoles per litre over the whole body as an average, then probably just, you know, choosing foods that have some salt in it based on personal taste preferences is probably adequate because you're not actually losing that much sodium that you're going to need to replace that much of it. If you're kind of around the middle, the average, around 40 millimoles per litre sweat sodium concentration, and you're able to drink more than 70% of your fluid losses, let's say 70 to 80%, then you probably only need to replace about 30 to 50% of your sodium losses. And obviously from a sweat test, you can work out what those sodium losses are and then you know, calculate 30 to 50% of those. If you've got very salty sweat, you know something over kind of 60 millimoles per liter, then you actually might need to replace sort of anywhere from 40 up to as much as 80% of your sweat sodium losses during exercise. And if you're very aggressively hydrating, you know, drinking sort of 90% plus of your fluid losses back during exercise, then those values may go up a little bit again. But that's usually a pretty unusual situation for most people. Now the final questions, you know, does it matter whether that sodium comes in drinks, food, gels, capsules, that kind of thing, tablets? No, probably not as far as we know. Um, I guess the other question is you know, sodium chloride, which is your typical kind of table salt versus sodium citrate, which is in a lot of products these days. We actually don't know. There's been no research to compare those two in in terms of how that impacts on athletes and and hydration and that kind of thing. So that's a bit of a mystery at this stage. But the fact that we're not seeing this epidemic of ultra runners running into problems when they're shifting to sodium citrate containing products suggests to me that if there is an effect there, it's subtle. It's not a a major catastrophic issue with one or the other, and then finally, at the end of all of this, I guess if you're not replacing more than seventy percent of your fluid losses, no, you don't need to go out to do a sweat test. No, you don't need to consume a specific milligram per hour amount of sodium during exercise, but that's not to say that you should avoid or you you shouldn't have sodium at all. You know, it just means that you adjust the amount of sodium you're having or not having based on your personal taste preferences rather than the result of a sweat test.
1: Okay, episode 48, should I get regular blood tests and what should I test for? We were joined by Dr. Alice McNamara, who's a sports physician and has been an elite level rower. So blood testing can be a useful tool from a health training and nutrition perspective. Getting blood tests done, if we're just getting them to look at calcium or iron and thinking that that actual calcium Result or iron result is going to tell us what our you know needs are or status is or health is in relation to calcium. Or iron is is not right because it's not actually telling us about our our overall nutritional status. So it's really just telling you what's kind of floating around in the blood. However, we actually need to know a, a wider range of factors. So if we talk about iron. If we want to know more about our iron status and health in relation to that, we need to consider what's what is our ferritin status, so the storage form of iron, what's hemoglobin, transferrin, transferrin saturation, et cetera. So we need to consider a range of factors, not just, you know, iron floating around in the blood. So there's a number of, of things that need to be considered with these tests. And therefore, it is important that you have a medical practitioner helping guide on the correct tests, depending on what's needed, and then helping interpret those results. Vitamin B12 and vitamin D can actually be direct biomarkers of nutritional status. However, others uh, aren't. So just as we've mentioned, the the calcium and iron, if we were just looking at that, Thyroid hormones and reproductive hormones can help provide insight into various aspects as well, such as bone health, energy availability. But there, again, is a number of factors that influence these markers. We can't be too simplistic in our interpretation of of blood test results and we really need to have a good understanding of exercise and medicine together and that's where a sports physician can be um, really important. In terms of getting blood tests done, we should be well advised if we are going to get them done, we, we should have a reason because at the end of the day, it, it is an invasive test and it, it does cost taxpayers money as well. And we need to understand why do we need it? And then when we get it done, what are we actually going to do if we find out that it is suboptimal? What's the action plan? Then. Once we've done that action plan, then when do we actually need to repeat that blood test to actually monitor our levels? There also may be a particular type of preparation that's needed prior to having a blood test. So we may need to consider our training and our hydration status. And if we don't do these things correctly, we could actually have a result that isn't actually that accurate. So again, it is advised to be guided by your, your medical practitioner. Okay, so episode 49, are sports drinks and gels bad for my teeth? And we were joined by Dr. Julie Savage, so a dentist and also a ultra trail runner. Uh, So gels and and drinks, yes, they they can potentially be bad for teeth, um, but they're not necessarily any worse than other acidic food products that we consume. So things like dried fruit, fruit juice. And in terms of tooth erosion and decay, they're, they're pretty similar processes. So tooth erosion is where the acid is wearing the actual enamel on teeth itself. So acidic foods can can do this and, and products that contain citric acid in foods. And the reason that you see citric acid in particular food products is that it can actually help with the flavour profile, makes the product taste more acceptable And then in terms of what tooth decay is, well, it's still caused by acid wear. However, it's where the bacteria that we have in our mouth are actually then digesting the sugar that we've consumed that's in our mouth. And then that produces a byproduct such as acid that then wears on the the teeth. So sports drinks and gels are not necessarily, as I've mentioned, any worse than other food products on the shelves, but it's more so related to the consumption in athletes. So These products tend to be consumed more frequently over a prolonged period of time and also usually when the athlete may not actually be producing as much saliva, so the saliva flow can can be less and saliva actually has components in it that can help protect the the teeth. We, We tend to think about food and fluid products in terms of total acid level or titratable acidity or in terms of pH so generally products with a high titratable acidity or pH are usually less ideal for, for dental health. Whole foods may actually be less acidic and less problem, problematic, so bananas, rice cakes, sandwiches, potato purees for, for during exercise nutrition. However, cereal bars or dried fruit, as we've mentioned, could actually still get stuck in the teeth and that means that then the sugar's sticking to the teeth for longer. So it's generally advised not to um, brush your teeth within 60 minutes of having these acidic products. We should probably wait about an hour, otherwise the actual the enamel is is softened during this time, which will then wear the teeth down more. Products that could be protective for teeth are things like foods that contain calcium phosphate are important, so things like dairy or calcium-enriched products can could be beneficial for dental health. And then like remineralization with specifically formulated gels and tooth mousses. So there's a product called GC Tooth Mousse that's directed to help protect the teeth and um, remineralize the teeth. There's a variety of products. Sugarless gums and water chases may be beneficial as well. And then using sports products when needed and not using them unnecessarily And then making sure that we do have regular checkups with the the dentist. I know that we perhaps don't do that. And otherwise, if we don't do that, we may not actually know if we are at risk of poor dental health, because as Julie mentioned, often we're going to the dentist when, you know, we're already experiencing that erosion or decay. We don't always see the, the symptoms until, you know, it's going to the extreme extent.
0: Awesome. We got there in the end, Steph. It's taken a while. (laughs) Hopefully uh, people are still listening, but um, yeah, hopefully it's given people a nice quick summary and overview of the year that we've had, the guests that we've had, and the topics that we've answered and the brief answers to those topics. So, Steph, our next episode, episode 51, is one that's came through from a listener, and I actually haven't got the listener there, but we'll have it ready for next week when we introduce it. To give the person the credit for it, but the question was, can you outrun a bad diet? So we'll talk a little bit about what that actually means. You know, overall the impact of you know energy intake versus expenditure, but also maybe is there is there a better way to think about that in terms of how we answer that question or how we reframe that into a, a different question as well? So we are going to have a guest with us. We uh, haven't actually invited them yet, so we won't say who it is in case they say no. Uh, I'm sure they won't, but uh, you never know. So yes, we will have a guest expert as well. Um, we're just waiting to tee that up.
1: Awesome! And then just wrapping up, uh, a reminder: if you have a question you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at the Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And remember, also, there's now 50 previous questions that we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You may like to just listen to. This particular episode, um, or the back catalogue to see if there's something there that you'll find helpful. Obviously, those episodes go into more detail than what we have today. And if you want to be notified every time that a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or racing, and you've heard it on the podcast, then you may like to let them know.
0: Yeah. And I think just before we finish, Steph, you know, a big thanks. Obviously, it's two years since we started this podcast. And a big thanks to everyone who's listened over that time. Everyone who's given us feedback, good, bad or otherwise. It's hopefully helped improve the podcast over time. Uh, all our various guests that we've had in the past year. You know, too many to go back and name, but obviously we've named them as we've been going through today. And yeah, everyone who's who's left a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or, or anywhere else and subscribe to the podcast, we really appreciate it. It's been uh, an interesting ride, some great conversations and got to meet some really great people. Some of them, obviously, people that we, we've known in the past. Others are people that we've met for the first time through this podcast as well. But it's been an absolute pleasure to do it, an absolute pleasure to interact with people online on social media um, and, and in various other formats.
1: So we will love and leave you, and we will see you in two weeks' time.
0: Yeah, we'll do. That's the the new schedule. Awesome. All right. See you then. See you, everyone.